This is an ABC podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. Hello, I'm Wesley Enoch. Dr Valerie Coombs is a Kwandamooka woman with deep roots to Moreton Bay. The place is in her blood. As a young girl, she grew up fishing and playing at One Mile on North Stradbroke Island, surrounded by family, including her auntie Kathleen, the famous poet Kath Walker, or Drew Nunuckle. She tells her family stories through her commitment to native title. She's been a nurse, and at one stage, worked with Fred Hollows. Valerie left nursing to pursue a career in the public service, and she hasn't looked back. She's worked on Royal Commissions, the National Native Title Tribunal, and is the newly re-elected chair of Kwandamuka Yulubaraba, representing her community in the struggle for recognition over her beloved Moreton Bay. With a father who taught her to box and a mother who wanted her to learn ballet, Valerie Coombs has always straddled two worlds with the grace and fancy footwork of a fighter. And as a Kwandamuka man myself, I call her Adi Val. Happy NAIDOC, Auntie Val. Oh, thank you, Wesley. What does NAIDOC mean for you? Wow. NAIDOC means a day of recognition. Because I'm a historian, I have to go back to the first um, National Aboriginal Day Observance Committee. And the people in New South Wales and Victoria were um, heavily committed to exposing the treatment and condition of Aboriginal people throughout the country. But um, I remember celebrating NAIDOC mm, probably from when I was about 16, 17 mm. here in Brisbane. In those days, we had black theatre at mm. the Aboriginal um, Black Community Centre in Leichhardt Street, Spring Hill. Yeah, yeah. And we had um, Uncle Don Brady, or Pastor Don Brady, and his sons and others that used to dance. Um, that was absolutely fabulous. So we always celebrated with corroboree and lots of people. Um, and then I moved to Rockhampton and we had NAIDOC celebrations there. And then I was at Musgrave Park. We had the first family day during NAIDOC. Oh, how deadly was that? That was fantastic. My oldest daughter was three, so that was 43 years ago. Oh, wow. And um, she wanted to run in the races and they said, no, you have to be four. And she said, well, I'll be four in a, in a while. <laughs> But she wanted to run. So, and we were all live. I was then living at the Joyce Wilding um, Hostel out at Eight Mile Plains, and they brought us in for a family day at Musgrave Park. So, oh. that was the beginning of the NAIDOC celebrations that we have now in Musgrave Park. Yeah, there's this wonderful sense of coming together. Oh, and everyone loves going to Musgrave because you see people you haven't seen for a long time. <laughs> and, and people you didn't yeah, want to see as yes, well. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, hey, it's look, great. In the intro, I said North Stradbroke Island, but we don't call it North Stradbroke Island. What we call it, Straddy, or we call it the island. The island. Yes, going um, over home. Yes, yes. Going to the island or going over home, but um, um, the traditional name is Minjuraba, mm. as I understand means land of many mosquitoes. Yes, so. I've heard that story, <laughs> and sometimes you experience it too. Yes, yes, you now, do. your mum and dad met on Stradbroke Island. Tell yes. us a little bit about that story. Well, dad, um, it was during the war, and petrol was rationed, so they couldn't go far, so him and his mates had a sailing boat, and they sailed to Australia, and they stopped off at one mile and were looking for fresh water, and my mother came walking along the beach. And he saw her and thought she was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen in his life. And he asked her if she'd like to go to the dance. Oh, cheeky. Yes. And she said, you'll have to ask my father. So he went to one mile where they had a little house. And he asked my grandfather if he could take my mother to the dance. And he said, yes. He was quite protective, of course. And Dad thought, well, while he was there, he was saying, look, I really should ask you now, can I marry her? Because I'm going to marry her. <laughs> And um, and he did, and they were happily married for 62 years. Oh, no, we say one mile. We're obviously meeting uh, on just outside of Dunwich, one mile, basically. Yes, it's a little camp they set up. Um, my oral mission was still there in those days, mm. but my grandfather had lived there and various other families who worked at the Benevolent Asylum, so they weren't allowed to live in Dunwich in those days. Yeah. So they lived close enough to be able to go and work at the Benevolent Asylum, but far enough to live away. So this yeah. Benevolent Asylum was... It was there for about 60 years leading up to I think uh, it was probably, yes. Yeah, so it was set up in the 1860s oh, and yeah. I think it closed um, after World War II. So that's probably, mm. what's, 80, 80 years, yeah. And a lot of Kwandamooka people worked at the Benevolent Asylum, as you said. Yes, they did. Um, my grandfather and um, some of his relatives 
um, worked on the jetty, unloading the boats that brought supplies over for the Benevolent Asylum. Mm. My mother came, when she was a bit older, she worked at the Benevolent Asylum with her sister, Aunty Lucy, petted, um, and they were wards maids. And did they get paid for this labour? Well, they did, but interestingly, my mother hadn't realised when she got paid because they had members of the the then Women's Army who, um, as they had a lot of women doing work that they didn't ordinarily do when the men were away at war. Yeah, yeah. I think the local school teacher asked Mum to find out from the other ward's maids how much they were getting paid and she realised that she was only being paid a third of what they were being paid, yet they were doing... Exactly the same job. So my mother's letters of complaint are in Queensland archives. Writing letters to the authorities is quite a theme in your mum's family. Your mum's sister, Annie Kath, how did she get involved in this as well after the Second World War? Well, what she did was, because she joined the army and she got finished in the army and my Annie Kath's brother, Uncle Eddie, he had lost his leg in the war. Though him and my uncle Eric were both in Changi Prison. And they were bombed. They worked on the Burma Railway and he lost his leg. And she started working. She'd learnt to type in the army and typing letters to make sure that he got what he was entitled to in terms of veterans, pensions and things like that because he was wounded in the war. And that started her journey of activism, I think. Well, yeah. it sounds like it also started a whole lot of people's activism at Well, the time it did. Too. I think it changed people's expectations, World mm. War II. I'm, mm. I'm sure it does um, in most communities. What do you think was the appeal of joining the army for your auntie, Kath? Oh, I think she liked it that it was award wages. Um, <laughs> yes. The relationships are strong, friendships and relationships. She formed with a lot of non-Aboriginal women, which I don't think she would have had quite that opportunity growing up where she grew up. Mm. But I think it would have been liberating for her given she was paid award wages for the first time because she had been a servant. Her and my mother were both sent to Brisbane to work for families as servants. Mm. She hated housework till the day she died, I think. <laughs> I think she did. <laughs> but when she was in the army, she did the signalling, you know, with the flags, the switch. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, she also was a good swimmer, so she was in the swimming competitions for the army. Yeah. When you grow up in an island, you learn to swim, don't you? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your dad then. Okay. What sort of family was he from? Well, he was he was white. I think his grandfather came out from England, so mm. they were like free settlers. They moved around western Queensland but settled in Winton. Um, his father was in the First World War and came back from the war and worked as a tram driver. And they lived in inner city Brisbane. They lived at Balimba. So he grew up in Balimba, did an apprenticeship as an electrician. He was a very smart man, but the family was very poor. So he couldn't do, he wanted to be a draftsman and wanted to go to university, but he never quite got there. And your father worked very hard. He was a very hard worker. He was a very hard worker and a very smart man and a very talented man. He was a, a good musician a brilliant artist. He won a scholarship to study art in Europe, but the war broke out, so he couldn't go. But he always said to me, the only rich artist is a dead one. (laughs) So in those days, so he had to earn money and he became an electrician. So arts and politics have always run in your family, both sides by the sounds of it. Oh, yes. My father was a a member of the Communist Party. He believed in uh, many things. He studied revolutions, encouraged us to study revolutions. He also encouraged us to study religion, but he wasn't a religious man. Mm. Yeah, mum was. Mum made sure we went to church, said prayers, did everything. But dad said, oh, look, you know, he, he used to wait outside while mum went to church. <laughs> so, How did your father's family feel about this marriage? Well, according to my mother, they weren't all that excited about the marriage. I don't think my father's mother understood the complexities of my father marrying an Aboriginal woman. Mm. My father told me that they were concerned about what if your children are dark and my father's response was, well, I don't care, I'll still love them. So I'm interested in what made him that way Mm. and he never balked. But he was naive in thinking that no one was ever going to discriminate against us for being Aboriginal. So when we were discriminated against as children, we had the unique situation of a white father demanding to know why and making people apologise. 
That's powerful. That was very powerful, particularly when he was the only electrician within 300 kilometres and could cut somebody's electricity <laughs> off. <laughs> I love the idea of the power. The he power. He can, he can so cut to off speak. your power yeah, <laughs> as <yeah>. well. <laughs> And did he stay in contact with his family then? Yeah, he always stayed in contact with his family. He was always big on family and supporting each other. Big on education, I imagine, too, both your parents. My father, yeah, both were, yes, yes. And what did they see in education? What was important? I think that was the only way to escape poverty. Um, I know my grandfather had the opportunity of being educated at Dunwich and mum told the story that the school was short on numbers so they invited a few local Aboriginal children to come Mm. to the Dunwich School. Mm. And he was educated to year eight, which was unusual in those days for somebody born in the 1880s. And so, of course, you could tell by the way he wrote that he was quite well educated. But my grandmother, my mother's mother, was illiterate. She was brought in Mm. from the desert, um, brought to Brisbane and put in the Aboriginal girls' home. And um, she couldn't read and write. Only Kath actually wrote a poem about her called The Teachers. Yeah. But my grandmother and my grandfather made sure that mum and everyone went to school. So he was my grandmother who couldn't read and write, used to sign an X um, for her name, and her daughter was one of the first Aboriginal poets that were published. Yeah, amazing. So it is amazing, yeah. Now let's go back to those early days then. Okay. Where did you live when you were very young? When I was very young, we lived at Lindham near Wynnum. Um, we travelled often to the island for holidays and things like that. And yeah. how, how many kids were in your family? Well, there were four, oh. my sister and two brothers and myself, yep. And, so, but we had Dennis and Vivian often staying with Dennis Walker and Vivian Walker because Arnie Kath was doing oh. lots of work and so they stayed with us quite often. So Arnie Kath's sons would come and stay with you? Yes, so yes. basically growing up together as well? We did. There was always people in the house. There was always someone from Stradbroke in the house. So what was a trip to Stradie like for you? What oh, t- it was in a boat. <laughs> and I used to get seasick and my grandmother used to laugh because my mother used to say, your grandfather would be horrified. <laughs> Is this the old Miramar? The Magira, I think Magira, it was. was yeah, it? yeah. So I was often sick if it was rough. But mm. I was fine as soon as I got there. But my grandmother used to get seasick too. So they used to think it was something to genetic from her side, being fresh water, a woman and all that. And what do you remember being at your, let's say, your grandmother's place? Your I remember Lucy. kerosene lanterns. I remember her cooking oyster fritters. But I remember asking her where she grew up. And she oh. said, I grew up on a station. And at that stage, we'd lived at Wynnum, which was Lindham train station. And mum used to catch a train to Wynnum. Yeah. And I thought, who would ever live at a train station? I hadn't realised that it was a cattle station that she lived on. <laughs> it wasn't it. until we moved to Bullia that I realised that that was where she'd come from. In Brisbane, you, you've got a story of going fishing, that you, you'd still do things that you would normally do on the island when you're living in Brisbane yeah, in different ways. Yeah, well, I think mum used to, well, mum used to crave fish and wild food. Mm. Um, we lived next to a swamp. And she used to sit out the back and say, they're good eating those birds, you know. She'd see something <laughs> waiting around in the swamp. But we mum didn't have a driver's licence, so we caught, there was an old yellow and green Wynnum, local Wynnum bus. Oh, yes. And we'd catch the bus down to Bay Terrace and we'd walk out to the jetty and we'd get the bait. And at we'd, Wynnum? At Wynnum oh, and yeah. we'd catch whiting. And we'd, she'd scale them and gut them. We'd put them in the bucket and we'd get back on the bus and we'd come home. <laughs> <laughs> With your, your lines and your buckets of fish and yep. everything. And from Wynnum, you can, that's, that's Quandamooka country as well. It is, it and is. And you can look out to Stradbroke Island just yes, over there. Yes, and all uh, other islands. What was behind your family's move to Bullia in Western Queensland when you were, what, um, eight years old? I wasn't quite eight when we got to Bullia. I was seven. Uh-huh. My brother had died tragically and Dad decided we were all going to go and live in the bush. Oh. Yeah, yeah. My oldest brother died and so Mum wasn't well after he died and I went to live stay at Dunwich with my grandmother for a while and then he came and said, we're all moving to Bullia. And I'm thinking, where is Bullia? Where are we going? He said, we're going to live out in the country. And I remember the Grace Brothers truck coming to yeah. pack the house and I said to Dad, will we have an iron in Bullia? Will we iron our clothes? And he said, yes, love, we'll be able to iron our clothes. And I thought, oh, I don't know what it's going to be like, you know. Mm. And when we got off the train at Duchess, because Dad's car had been on the train as mm. well, it was a three-day train trip in those days on the Sunlander and then the Westlander, <laughs> the Inlander or whatever it was. <laughs> the Lander. Yeah, and... um. 
we got to Duchess and I got off the train and I thought, oh, I'm standing too close to the train. It's the, the heat's coming off the train. It wasn't the heat off the train. It was the heat. It was just stinking oh. hot. So we drove to Bullia and found our little house. that The council owned everything in those days. And yeah. We had a house and there we were at Bullia and what Dad ran the powerhouse. It was a shock for Mum. From, from the jetty? Looking over a Kwandamuka country, yeah, water, sea breeze, to the hot desert, this red dirt. Yeah. How did your mother cope? Mum didn't like it because she didn't like the fresh water. The fresh water wasn't nice either. And um, oh. but she did spend a lot of time putting salt in the fresh water crayfish <laughs> and cooking them <laughs> to get the seafood taste. But when I went to school, I just assumed that every Aboriginal kid was. A relative, and so I followed them all home on my first day at school. And they all lived; a lot of people lived on the riverbank in Bully in those days, oh. and they couldn't work out who I was. And my poor dad's driving around trying to find me, but I was just seven years old. So you sort of take it in your stride as a kid. What do you remember of that little country primary school? There were black kids, white kids, everyone together. Yeah, a lot, lot of white kids, not so many Aboriginal kids at the school in those days because mm. I don't think it was compulsory until the mid-60s or so for Aboriginal kids to come to school, but a lot of Aboriginal kids were there and I still remember all of their names and and um, who they were and where they lived. There's a story of one of your schoolmates going missing. Yeah. What happened there? Well, I went to school and um, he'd gone and in a small town yeah. like Bullia, People usually know when you're going to move or we're moving to Townsville or we're moving here or wherever they're going, Mount Isa. People didn't sort of go too far in those days. Um, But he'd gone. And I remember asking some of his family, like, where has he gone? And they said, oh, he's gone to Palm Island. But I didn't know where Palm Island was. Mm. And I knew in Moreton Bay there was Bird Island and Goat (laughs) Island and Peel Island. And so I went home from school and asked my mother, would we ever get to go to Palm Island? For some reason, I thought there was only one bay with islands and that was Moreton Bay. Yeah. I had no idea there were other islands and I was only seven. And the reaction, the response of my mother was about who spoke to you about Palm Island? Who said Palm oh. Island? We'll never go to Palm Island. I don't want you to ever talk about Palm was Island. Was she angry? She was angry. She was upset. She was distressed that oh. someone had spoken to me about Palm Island. I had no idea what the story was was with Palm Island. This so is I, weird because she's quite a, a timid, uh, yes, quiet woman yes, to get angry she was. And uh, I had no idea. Um, so I sat on the back steps and I think my father saw the look on my face and he came out to give me this big political rave that he often did that sometimes people don't like people just because they're not white. I hadn't understood that. I really still had trouble differentiating between which family was white and which family wasn't white. Um, and to which he started to talk about South Africa, the civil rights movement in America. What period of time is We're this? We're talking um, 1963. So he had all this political understanding and awareness that I really couldn't comprehend. But he was filling me in to say that there's this whole political struggle there and this is what's affecting your mother. Yes, right. So I sort of forgot about Palm Island and started to think about different things. And people might not realise too that Palm Island was like a prison island, really. It was. You got sent there if you were in trouble, if there was something. So no wonder your mother reacted. Well, I think she was always scared that we would get taken because we were fair. Yeah. Um, she and, and underlying this was her fear of the act and the protector. And I had no idea that mm. of the act or, or any such thing. I had no idea. Now, there's a story of you handing out flyers. Oh, yes. My father, well, I had to give my morning talk at school. Um, mm. And that was during the 67 referendum. I would have been 11. All <laughs> right. And he said, you can do your morning talk on the 1967 referendum. And I had the flyer and he gave me all the background and that was the topic for my morning talk at school. Yeah. <laughs> the, the need for the change to the constitution and the 1967 referendum. Yeah. I mean, very political family. Very political. And we had this little school newsletter had some of Arnie Kaff's poetry and I put my hand up at school and said, that's my auntie. And no one believed me. <laughs> but it was. And she'd actually sent Dad all of the... The, the forms to hand out to everyone in Bullia to vote for the referendum. Oh, yeah. how fantastic. Yeah. 
Were you seeing the politics in the news at all? We moved to Hewenden when I was 12 because Bullier School didn't have high school. And um, I think I was about 15 when the microwave towers were built and they broadcast ABC radio uh, television all the way through North Queensland and we got ABC television for the first time. And I remember watching F Troop. And various other things, but it was the news and this day tonight or today tonight. It was this day tonight, I think, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And there was Dennis Walker being interviewed. Your cousin? Yes, yes. And I oh, this could, is when he was in the, like, the Black Panther movement and yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember mum and dad watching, but I remember seeing Dennis and thinking, what's this about? Because it was quite radical. He was drump, jumping on a police car. That's right. I've seen those And photos. at that time, I think, I really need to find out what's going on down here <laughs> in Brisbane. You know, I was a little bit older and starting to get a bit wiser in terms of racism. Did you fit into the schools there in Hewenden in high school? Never, never. I never never really felt I fitted in. A lot of people up there were related. A lot of the non-Aboriginal families were related, but I wasn't connected to anybody. Well, not no one really. Um, There was a gang of local girls who actually bullied me for about a year and a half. In what way? What what kind of bullying? Oh, called names, you know, Coonbury, Gin Woman, Tarbrush, and I and, and Mum used to say, oh, they're just jealous. And I never thought in a million years that it was envy that drove it. But I had no idea what did drive it. Mm. Um, but I was good at athletics. I was smart at school. I guess that drove them mad. And then finally, one of the they came up to me and she said, I want to meet you down the river. And it was a huge big river in Huondon that was often dry. It was a mm. big um, sand river. Um, meet me down the river. We're going to have a fight. Oh. And I was absolutely petrified, but I knew I had to go because if I didn't, they were just going to pick and pick and pick. How old are you at this time? Nearly 14, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, So I had to meet her down the river and I only had one friend and she came with me. Did you know how to fight? Well, I didn't think I did. (laughs) (laughs) My mother had sent me to ballet, of course, which made me very flexible and strong, even though I was really, really thin. Yeah. But Dad had taught me to box, but he only taught me to hit. He hadn't taught me to duck. <laughs> <laughs> but he did say, if any, if I, you know, anyone hits you, you hit them back. Yeah. Right. And he knew I'd been bullied, I think. And um, he said, you hit the one with the biggest mouth right in the nose. So you're down the river. I'm down the river. What she, happens? Well, she stands there and I'm absolutely petrified. And she had one of the boys, um, he was the referee, to make sure that nobody fought dirty and everyone else had to go and stand on the bridge to watch. And there was a whole heap of kids <laughs> watching. And she hit me and I hit her and it was on and I actually won the fight. Um, and when I got back to school, it was as if the crowd just parted because I oh. actually pinned her down and punched her repeatedly. But you let her punch you first. Oh, yeah, she hit me first, yeah. And this is some advice from your father. He said, well, there's no need to hit anyone first. But because she'd hit me, I had to fight back. There was a whole crowd watching. Mm. But I didn't think in a million years that I would win that fight, and I did. Change my life at high school with the girls forever. The boys kept calling me racist names, but the girls stopped, Yeah. <laughs> And did you have a dream? Did you have a sense of what were you going to wanting to do next? I mean, you can't. Oh, I knew age. I wanted to get out of that town because yeah. I used to say to people at the swimming pool, I'm going to leave this. Where are you going to go? I said, I don't know, but I want to, I'm going to go around the world. And I remember these young girls said, How are you going to get there? I said, I'll probably catch a boat. <laughs> I only knew about boats, but I knew I was getting out of that town. Yeah. How did you make the break out of Hewenden? You went nursing, yeah? You yeah, I, I, I became a student nurse at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. Um, I lived at the nurses' quarters, then I worked at the Musgrave Road Aboriginal Health Service with mm. um, Sister Pammy Ma'am uh, uh, on my days off. Yeah, right. How many Aboriginal nurses would there have been? There were a lot of, a lot of Aboriginal young women went nursing, mm. and I think it was to do with having accommodation provided. My mum's day, mum wanted to be a nurse, but Aboriginal girls weren't allowed to be nurses. They could be domestics, but not nurses. Oh, yes. So I had year 10, so I was able to qualify for nurses training. So I started at the Royal Brisbane and then mum and dad moved back to Brisbane. They went moved to Redcliffe, so I transferred to Redcliffe Hospital. Right. 
But then I got married very young. I was 18 when I got married. Oh, um, yeah, and I married um, a man from Sherbrooke. He was um, at the Black Community Centre. Yeah. And then we moved to Rockhampton. I had two children there, and it was his job that I sort of ended up in different places, Kunnamulla and Warabinda and oh, places travelling like around. That. Yeah. So yeah. finally the, the romance came and you got swept off your feet at 18? Oh, yes. Very handsome man. Very, very <laughs> handsome man. Yeah. yeah. Well, and why, bred why? me beautiful children too. And he and I share eight grandchildren now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, how gorgeous. It's wonderful. Yeah. How gorgeous. Where were you working with Fred Hollows? When did he Oh, that was Kunnamulla. Oh, Kunnamulla. Um, I was working for the Aboriginal Health Program. And all I remember was the, the flyer that came around It had a green frog with huge big eyes and it was about an eye clinic and we had no idea. I'd never heard of Fred Hollows. And he came to Cunnamull and we'd organised the clinic so he was very keen to get me to come and work with him. Yeah, so we travelled around a little bit with Fred Hollows. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that was excellent. He was an exciting man, a, a wonderful doctor. On air online and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Anivel, what was your family situation by the time you gave up nursing? Um, I'd become a sole parent, so I was on my own with the kids. And that must so have been I hard. Had, yeah, it was. A, well, it was, but my parents were very good. They're very supportive, but I, I had to find a nine-to-five job. And nursing wasn't going to do it no, for you? No, it was shift work, yeah. Mm. yeah. So you got a job as a trainee with the Commonwealth Employment Service. What was that move into the public service really like? I'd just gotten the Housing Commission house at Carina. That was a win-win. And so it was close handy. I had a little mini car that was a little mini um, that my brother had purchased on his bank card. It cost $400. Oh. So I was able to drive my little mini from Carina to Cooparoo to the Commonwealth Employment Service. And the people in the Commonwealth Employment Service were incredible people. Um, They helped me. I remember one woman named Bernadette Dalton. Um, she let me use her bank card to go to Myers and buy some clothes. So this is a woman in the CES? In the CES, yeah. And you remember her name to this day? Yes. Why is yes, that important? Because she was pretty deadly. She was a smart woman. She was actually studying at university. She was studying law, but she worked at the Commonwealth Employment Service. So she said, oh, if you need clothes, I can take you down and you can just pay me back. So I paid her back on it because she had a bank card. So I had clothes for the for work at the Commonwealth Employment Service and these jobs came through for Clark Aboriginal Services in the Commonwealth Public Service. This was my opportunity to get a permanent job in the public service. And what I didn't know at that time, there were people like Gloria Brennan, who was this Aboriginal woman from Western Australia, and Pat Turner and others mm. who'd worked hard in the public service to get more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into the Commonwealth Public Service. They saw it as crucial, given where they were um, delivering Aboriginal programs. So I went and sat for that exam, passed, and the Public Service Board said there were no jobs in Brisbane, but if I wanted a permanent job, there was a job in Canberra. So I went and phoned my father. So I didn't even have the phone on. That's how poor we were. Uh-huh. But not many people had the phone no. in those days. Little phone box down the yeah, end of the street. Yeah, I went street. to the phone box down at the Karina Heights shops <laughs> and I rang my dad and I said, look, I passed the test, but I, there's no jobs in Brisbane. I have to go to Canberra. And he said, well, look, love, if you don't do it, you'll never know. You should go. But I bit the bullet and we went. I think I was 24 when I got to Canberra and the kids and I got to the airport in Canberra. We landed. I had my dog in a little carry thing <laughs> and the Commonwealth car refused to carry my dog. Oh. So I'm standing there crying at the airport. And if the, if I could have got back on that plane and gone home, I probably would have. Um, but an interesting man, Brenda Croft's father, Joe Croft, oh, yes. came out and looked after my dog for me so I could start work in Brenda the public. Brenda Croft, a very famous an, Aboriginal artist. Yes, famous. Well. Yeah, and I always look after Brenda because her father looked after me. 
He looked after my dog and the kids <laughs> and I stayed at this old hostel called Gary Hostel and I started my first day in the Department of Aboriginal Affairs as a Clark Class 1. So I started to meet Aboriginal people from right across the country and we had our induction or our orientation and there was a, a good cohort of Aboriginal people and so we all got together and we drilled the senior officers in the Department of Aboriginal Affairs so much they said they weren't going to have another orientation program <laughs> <laughs> because they started to talk to us about the outstation movement, which was yes. in the Northern Territory, how mm. they, when people were coming off pastoral properties and things like that, and it was a program so people could live in the bush, and we basically said, well, why haven't you got them all the way across the country? Why are you only doing it in the Northern Territory? Well, we were asking interesting questions as Class 1s, so I'm sure they thought, well, this is going to be a good ride. And <laughs> and uh, Pat Turner and a, a man named Kerry Wisdom came in for morning tea with all of us. And here was me with like an army greatcoat because it was so cold. I didn't have much money. I wasn't elegantly dressed. And Kerry Wisdom apparently said, well, I know you're here to work. Because you could tell by the look of me. So I did, a, I did, I think I did my first placement in the photocopy room till I accidentally ran into somebody with the trolley of oh, right. <laughs> photocopy. Yeah. Then I did some work at the Queanbeyan Regional Office and then I went to work in health policy. Yeah. So very interesting days, yeah. And making a big impact. What did you get out of working in Canberra? What were the big things that you learned? I learned about how government works. Yeah. That was the most important thing. And that was what Charlie Perkins told Pat Turner. Get in there and understand how it works, how they get the money out the door, how they set policy, who writes policy, how you've got to understand, how your understanding of how community works is so important when you're working at a mm. national level and writing policy. So I started to write ministerial correspondence and then I had to start to learn to write as a bureaucrat. You may wish to consider... You know, how yes, you, yes. The, the passive sentences. And then when I got into academia, it was a different style of writing altogether. What were some of the big issues for Aboriginal people at that time? Well, it was Aboriginal women because they hadn't actually started the Equal Employment Opportunity. I was there working in women, the women's business report, the first women's business report came out. You had Jackie Huggins and a whole range mm. of interesting women. Um, Susan Ryan set up. The interesting policies in relation to women. Susan Ryan. Yes, Senator Susan Ryan. Oh, the, oh yeah, I know the yeah. name. She yes, was yes. in charge of the, the assisting the Prime Minister in relation to women's issues. So it became a huge big thing in the public service. But the Equal Employment Opportunity was about women, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, people from non-English speaking backgrounds and disabilities. So you had this whole big policy change within the public service, which I thought was really interesting. And we had to have, I remember, in the public service, they'd gone from manual typewriters to electric typewriters. That's how old I am, Wesley, sadly. <laughs> typewriters, even the word typewriter. Typewriter, kind of yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, this woman was, was, was struggling and um, I found an old manual typewriter for her because she couldn't work an electric typewriter. Mm. I explained to her all the way along the wall, that's the assistant secretary, that's the first assistant secretary. These guys were senior people that, oh, I was still at Clark Class 1 or something like that, Clark Class But you knew the system. I knew who was who. And she said, oh, they're all so senior. And I said, well, never mind, you'll get there one day. And she said, oh, no, you've got to be the right colour here. And I said, you're going to be real sorry you said that one day. And, and she's we, a black one. She was a white one. Oh, she's a white one. Yeah, yeah. So I called, we called Aboriginal staff meeting and in those days there was 13 Ah. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people working in the Commonwealth Public Service in the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. In the Department of Aboriginal Affairs? There were 13. Out of how many? Oh, I don't know, probably a couple of hundred. Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> only 13 of us. But Pat Turner was one and Professor Colin Burke was another. And we called the then secretary, and this is before Charlie Perkins, this was a secretary named John Taylor, and we said, look, you're recruiting these people who don't have any understanding yes. of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander culture. So from that moment on, the Secretary decided that every job in the Department of Ab Aboriginal Affairs would have those two criteria, which were the ability to communicate and a knowledge and understanding of Aboriginal mm. Torres Strait Islander culture. And we had some really good, there were some really good, interesting people working there. 
but you could make sure that you didn't get people in who didn't actually mm. like working with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. And how are these policies making their way into communities? What kind of effect did it have in well, communities? Well, there was a policy of um, self-determination, which had become then, this is after the Whitlam years, and then mm. it be, Malcolm Fraser was the Prime Minister, and it gone from self-determination to self-management. The whole idea was that the government would provide funding to organisations to provide services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So the idea was that the services that were designed and delivered by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were by far the best services, the way to deliver services. Well, and we've gone back to that with the closing the gap, haven't we? We've... Well, it is. But then when you start to go to university and start to analyse things, <laughs> there could be an argument used that because the government couldn't fix it easily... It decided to fund Aboriginal community-based organisations and then when things didn't change, the government could say, well, we're funding you, yeah. why aren't you changing it? So it was kind of one step removed from what government could oh, or couldn't do. That's interesting. So I really believe in the community control model, but sometimes they refer to it as welfare colonialism. And what were some of the projects that were making a big difference? Um, the one for the, the, the women's shelters, um, mm. another one was the design for a women's shelter at Warbinda, mm. and people said, oh, well, that won't work because you've got to have, it's got to be a secret where the women's shelters are. Well, you can't keep a secret of where anything <laughs> is at Warbinda, but they yeah. did put in an alarm so that if anyone came there humbugging, they could press this alarm, and apparently, I'm told, it only went off once because everyone gets so shamed because the alarm goes yes. off and they find out who was there. So you had all these women coming up with solutions yeah. themselves. So there were always interesting programs delivered and designed by women for women. And you've mm. talked a story about birthing as well, that women would have to be sent away six weeks in advance. Yeah, well, that was to help because... Um, the infant mortality rates had a lot to do with the birth weight. In 1968, after the referendum, the Commonwealth paid the Queensland Institute of Medical Research to go around to all Queensland communities and do a health screening. And in those days, you did a screening of zero to five-year-olds and yeah. that could tell you the health of the whole community. Mm -hmm. And they found that um, malnutrition and poor um, nutrition was the cause of a lot of the infant mortality and low birth weights. So the obstetricians decided that it was a good idea to take women out of the community and to the closest regional centre to have their babies, but a lot of those women did not want to go. With yeah, no that was a big ask yeah. of anybody or stay in Rockhampton for six weeks. Yeah. So, yeah, but women, a lot of women did not want to do that. So you had to try and bring the services back to the communities. Some years later, you were working on the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody. What was your involvement with that report? Uh, well, what happened was I knew the Royal Commission had, had happened. Um, I was working in the Brisbane Regional Office as a senior project officer in those days. Um, we went to some of the meetings with the police. My son was 14 years of age and we started to see the harassment oh. that he was getting from police. And, you know, he wasn't the type of kid to take a backward step like... When he you was, say harassment, what, what, what form did well, it Well, he take? was in the – a lot of Aboriginal kids were hanging at the mall because mm -hmm. there's not much else to do. He was probably 14 with his cousins and um, the police come up and said, look, it's a really hot night tonight, boys. Do you think you could do a rain dance? So oh. his friend says, well, you do a pig dance and we'll do a rain oh, dance. <laughs> right. So, of course, who ends up in a headlock and yeah. taken down to the watch house? My son. So – I thought to myself, this is not going to end well. So I wondered what we should do. And then the Royal Commission came. He lost some friends in custody. Yes, he did. Yeah, he yeah. was bewildered, um, trying to understand. And my old boss, from when I worked in health policy, he's a gentleman named Kerry Wisdom. He rang me up in the regional office and said, Coombsy, can you come down to Canberra to work with me for about six, eight weeks? I'm in the Royal Commission monitoring unit. He had to write the reports for the implementation of the Commonwealth's recommendations. Yeah. He wanted me to come down and help him. I said, yep. Yeah. And I went down for seven weeks and stayed for five years, yeah. Five years. Five well, years. I took my son with me. Well, now, tell me about this pact you made with your son. Oh, yeah. He said to me, Mum, if anyone says I hung myself, make sure they investigate because it won't be true. 
I promise you I won't hang myself in the cell. Oh, my God. I mean, that's... But you had to know that if you said goodbye to your son, you might not see him again. That was a political reality for a lot of Aboriginal mm. women. And I hadn't realised till I took him to Canberra and that there were a lot of other Aboriginal women who had that opportunity because they worked for the Commonwealth. So there were some Aboriginal women from WA, there were some Aboriginal women from Northern Territory yes. who'd moved to Canberra with their sons, mostly sons, not so much daughters, but sons, worried about their relationship with police and that they could end up being apprehended by police. And it showed on the Royal Commission that these kids start being apprehended by police at an early age and what they call the big trifecta or the ham, cheese, tomato, um, offensive language, resisting arrest and assaulting police. The ham, cheese and tomato. Ham, cheese, tomato. That's what they used to call it in the legal service or, or the big trifecta. And all this material, all this relationship with your son, what, what, what effect does it have on you or did it have on you then? Well, it, it eats your guts out, basically. I thought it's a good idea to take him to Canberra. And Canberra was a whole different story with the way the police related to Aboriginal kids. It was nowhere near as bad as Queensland. Um, yeah. The police actually come up to him and says, what's your name? Where are you from? And the police liaison officer was there and said, oh, I'm from Cairns and yeah, yeah. And he said, Mum, I can't believe the way they spoke to me. I said, yeah, it's different in Canberra. So he finished his schooling and thrived and oh, did really well. well. Yeah. What do you think's changed? I think some of the things have changed in the sense that Prisoners are allowed out to go to family funerals and things like that. That was unheard of mm. early days. There's always an investigation into a death in custody. Someone being apprehended by police or being pursued by police is verified as a death in custody. Yes. But the thing that I found out from working on the Royal Commission was that 200 of the 339 recommendations were the responsibility of state and territory governments. The Commonwealth had no power to make the states and territories mm. implement those recommendations. And not many of those recommendations are fully implemented? I think that people would argue that they are some, somewhat implemented, but I don't think the relationship, I think we have to work hard on the relationship between police and Aboriginal people because police are trained to profile. And when I, my grandson, who's 18, he was 16 at the time. He went to um, Ambrose Tracy, which is the old Nudgee Junior, and then he got a scholarship. Another posh school. Yeah. Then he got a scholarship, to st a rugby union scholarship to Ipswich Grammar. So he's a lovely boy. And I'm not just saying that because he's my grandson. He is a nice boy. And he was walking up the road to go to his friend's house and the police pulled him over, made him take off his shoes and empty out his pocket and he showed them his card from college, you know, and, and I was on the board of the Aboriginal Independent School mm. and we were trying to talk to the kids and talk to the police about how we improved the relationship between them and the police. So we've got a long way to go with the history of the relationship between police and Aboriginal people, but... I just have to equip my grandchildren with the ability to manage the police because it can make that big difference because once you're arrested two or three times and go before a judge on offensive language, resisting arrest and assaulting police, which is the, as we said, the trifecta, they're starting to be profiled. They're starting to look like they're little criminals. Yeah. And this can change and, and ruin their lives for the future. So, you know, keeping them out of the, the, the sight of the police and trying to get them through life without having any convictions is really hard for, for mm. a mother and, and a father. You also went to university around this time. What did you study? Well, I did an arts degree at ANU only because I was working on the Royal Commission and this woman named Caroline Joski, who was a Jewish lawyer, very smart woman, said, Valerie, you've really got to go to university. And I said, oh, look, you know, I don't know the difference between a lecture and a tutorial. And she said, do that. I said, I'll probably do a tertiary preparation course. And I did a 12-month tertiary preparation course at ANU. And I had the choice of either doing Aboriginal studies or uh, women's studies. So I decided to do women's studies. Oh, that's interesting. What, what made you decide that one? Oh, I just thought 
it would be something different, mm. but I learned about feminist theory and all sorts of interesting stuff. So I applied to go to university the following year and then in the first year, I was still working on the Royal Commission, they enrolled me in first year anthropology and first year archaeology because that's where all Aboriginal people did in those days. Well, I really couldn't really cope with anthropology, but I did it. <laughs> what was What was bad about anthropology? Well, I, th- I thought it was very voyeuristic. I mean, what, mm. what, what do they call it when they look at white people? It's called so- sociology, you know. Right. Like, so it had to be something exotic. But I, I, I liked the difference in cultures, you know, and things that happened because it was all around the world. So I enjoyed it. But they had a lot of Aboriginal study stuff that I sort of thought, ooh, that sort of... I, I remember one of the lecturers saying, you can see culture practice today if you go out into remote areas of Australia. And oh. I walked down that lecture theatre, Manning Clark Theatre it was. So I went down and said, listen, mate, you don't have to go that far. There's culture right out here in Canberra and Queanbeyan, you know. Yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, well, I stand corrected. God bless him. Um, he still shudders when he hears my name, I'm told. <laughs> but archaeology, I, I'm, I'm glad I learned it. But in the next year, I took it much more seriously and enrolled in political science and history, which was more my, what I needed to do. How have you used those skills today? I like the history because it makes me, I think it's the analysis. It's the analysis that your brain is often on analysis, like how does this work? The things that I learnt about political science is it doesn't matter who you vote for, it's a politician that's going to get in. (laughs) <laughs> so I learnt that, yeah, very quickly, politics are politics. But with the history and the combination of politics, I started to f- focus, I did my honours thesis on um, the first 20 years of the Aboriginal Protection Restriction and Sale of Opium Act. Yeah. And that helped me put my grandmother on the record. She had no registration of her birth. She couldn't read and write. So I went into archives and went to find everything there was to be found about her. Now, that particular act, which is... Yeah, that was what forced, that prompted her forced removal as a young girl. That was the story we had, that she was forcibly removed. She was tricked into leaving Marindown Station where she was and she'd grown up. Now, where is this? When in, Out near Bullia. At Bullia. Ironically. Oh, wow. Yeah. 30 kilometres probably from where I was living. Wow. Um, yeah. So you talk about the spirits lining up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, she was brought to Brisbane and she worked at the Magdalen Asylum. She had a baby named Mabel, uh-huh. who was her firstborn. And then the story was that she never stopped looking for Mabel. Mabel was taken off her and we they could never find her. What, as a baby? She was taken off her? No, and... she was taken at six years of age. And that's oh. what I couldn't understand, why they let the two of them live together for that long. Six years? Six years. But then I found out when I went through the history that when they brought in the Protection Act... The director of orphanages wrote to the chief protector and said, "Don't bring any Aboriginal kids to the orf- children to the orphanage because we can't take them here." So but the government couldn't had, take them because they didn't have enough room, or they just didn't want to take they Aboriginal just didn't, kids. Well, probably a bit of both. It took the government six years to develop its policy, which was that any child less than half caste or less than quarter caste would go to the mainstream orphanage. Any child quarter caste or darker. They set up the dormitories on reserves. Now, this whole thing about half-caste, quarter-caste, octoroon, all of this And they categorised those Aboriginal children. But interestingly, in the first, and that took them six years to develop that policy, which is why she was left with my grandmother for six years. Wow. Then they put her in the mainstream orphanage and she was sent there believing all of her life. This is Mabel. This is Mabel, that she wasn't Aboriginal. She didn't know she was Aboriginal. She just thought she was put in the orphanage because her mother didn't want her. And contact was not encouraged. But you see that when the kids in Sherberg who were categorised, or Bramber, who were categorised as quarter caste by officials, this wasn't Aboriginal people making Mm. these categorisations, it was officials who were doing it, it wasn't Aboriginal people. Those kids were then sent to the mainstream orphanage and the orphanage knew they'd come from an Aboriginal reserve, so they sent them back. So their own policy didn't even work. Oh, wow. So I had that analysis very early in my honours thesis to write about her story but also analyse the government's policies. So your grandmother, this is Lucy, your grandmother Lucy. Yeah, Lucy. So I wrote about the first, the implementation of the 1897 
protect oh, the Aboriginal Protection Restriction Sale of Opium Act from the 1890s to the 1920s, and that was the years that they dealt with her. And I focused on Bullia, Brisbane, North Stradbroke Island. So everyone says, oh, what a strange combination of towns. I said, that was her journey. That's And that's your journey of blood. And how she met my grandfather yeah. was they took all the girls who were put out to service, they were put out to work for white families around Brisbane because those families believed when they came to Australia, to enhance their social position, they should have servants. And there was a shortage of servants. All the Irish Catholic girls and the convict transportation had ceased. So they needed these girls. So they trained them up and sent them out to work. But they brought them all back together every Christmas and took them on the government steamer over to Australia for a picnic. So the men who worked on the jetty <laughs> unloading things for the benevolent asylum must have thought all their birthdays come at once because a boatload of Aboriginal women, most of them were not from Stradbroke. So some of the families that were in the yeah. girls' home with my grandmother married Aboriginal men from North Island. So the story of your mother and your father meeting on the beach starts very much with your grandmother Lucy meeting your grandfather yeah. on the jetty at And the letter Island. he wrote in to the chief protector asking for permission to marry her and he, he described himself as half-caste Portuguese yeah. when he was actually half-caste Aboriginal, but he didn't mention that. Didn't so mention he that. knew how to play the system way back then. If you were to think back and go, what would my father think now about where I am, what I've achieved, what I'm doing now, how I'm looking after country, yeah. what would your father think or even your mother? Oh, look, mum, mum would think it was absolutely fantastic, but dad would like, because he kept saying to me, anything you can do for the greater good, do it. And what kind of auntie are you today? Oh, I suppose there's a bit of Auntie Kathleen there, but there's always <laughs> a bit of mum too because, you know, mum used to come over and visit me on a Saturday morning and I was working full time. I had three kids. Valerie, you haven't washed your fry pan. And I said, mum, I've got to leave something for you to do. <laughs> but I am the type of auntie that everybody comes to if they're in trouble and the type of nanny that everybody comes to because I've got lots of grandchildren now and they come to me if they're in trouble or something's gone wrong. So I think there's a little bit of both, Aunty Kathleen and Mum. Which is beautiful. Well, Aunty Val, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations. It's a pleasure, Wesley. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.